It's great to be back with you today. Uh, it's always a privilege for me to come back uh, to my home, to Marquette, the Upper Peninsula. I um, enjoyed having a week here um, out at the cabin. I guess you know you're a true youper if it's uh, 53 degrees in the middle of July and you don't mind at all. It's, <laughs> it's okay. Um, so uh, it's been really wonderful to be here. Um, I do wish my family could be with me. They're already back in Germany. Um, uh, the, my wife left uh, a little over a week ago with um, Emma, and Adrian was already over there. Uh, just a quick family update. He's, Adrian's at the University of uh, Cologne in Germany, and Emma at the University of Gießen in our town. And, um, and our daughter, Helena, just got married three weeks ago. Beautiful service out in Massachusetts where we've spent our last year of furlough, and she and her husband will be staying in the Boston area for a while. Um, it's been just, yeah, a privilege to be here this year and to be with you last summer, and then this summer uh, I'm on my way. Actually, by the end of next week I'll be, or at the end of this week, I'll be back in Germany um, as well. We've gotten everything packed up, and I didn't bring a whole lot except uh, some prayer cards that you didn't, I didn't have with me last time I was here, so you're welcome to take these. These are out in the back. Please feel free to help yourself. Um, I've looked on missionary prayer card web uh, trading websites, and these are going really hot. Uh, <laughs> these are worth about two West Whites and three Russ Whites at the moment, so make sure you get those. What? <laughs> what I've been doing um, mostly in the last uh, year, uh, aside from traveling here and there, is um, teaching a little bit at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where I'm an adjunct uh, professor of New Testament, uh, and writing um, a Colossians commentary. In fact, I was able to finish pretty much this last week out at the cabin with the wife and kids gone, and there was a lot of good time to um, get the last verses of that done. So hopefully by next year that'll be uh, published. But I've been just enjoying so much this last year where I've been able to um, you know, just really delve into the letter of Colossians and realize its message, which is all about the lordship of Christ. So um, I want to um, discuss that with you. The title of the sermon is Responding. Uh, to the Lordship of Christ. You know, some gifts, by their very nature, place us under an obligation. Um, we often don't think of that when we think about gifts. In our thinking in the Western world, it's a, actually a real modern idea, not an ancient one or in other parts of the world. A gift is something that has no uh, obligation to it. But there are gifts that have... Uh, obligations, and we know that too. The gift of life, for instance, obligates us to our parents. My mother is now 87 and aging and has some needs she didn't have even a few years ago. Um, and I feel a sense, rightly, of obligation because she brought me into the world, as she would remind us uh, when she was threatening to take us out of the world. Um, <laughs> uh, and so this is an obligation we have. We've forgotten in our culture that the gift of your body to another person in a sexual act obligates that you to them. And I think many of the symptoms of our cultural demise have to do with forgetting that 
that there's an obligation attached to that. Here's another one. God sending his son into the world to die in our place is a gift, but it obligates us. We are under obligation when we understand that to respond appropriately to the lordship of Christ. Again, we mentioned there's this modern misunderstanding of grace uh, that it's kind of opposed to obedience or um, to the understanding of the lordship. Christ is our savior. Maybe he's our lord. I don't find that um, actually uh, very helpful, and I think, again, it's a real modern way of thinking about it. Grace means I receive a free gift, uh, but again, in our culture, that has become... It, we, there's no expectation of anything in return. That comes from, of all uh, places, if you're interested philosophically, uh, philosophically, Immanuel Kant a few hundred years ago with the idea that any act that I do that is motivated by self-interest at all cannot be um, a generous act. And uh, so we have this uh, disparity in our thinking about that since then. But that wasn't the case in Paul's world and in Jesus' world. I just recently read a book by a theologian called Paul and the Gift. And he points out that this modern understanding is not at all what the rest of the world until very recently and even the non-Western world thinks today. The point of grace is not that there is no response to it. The point of grace is that we are entirely unworthy to receive the gift. That's what uh, makes grace grace. Now, we want to look today at how we respond to the Lordship of Christ. I want to look at two texts uh, with you. Is that the right way to go ahead? Yeah. Uh, The first one is in Colossians uh, 1, 13 and 15, um, and really sums up the gospel. um, And Paul uses this as kind of a way of getting into his whole uh, thinking and teaching in the book of, in the letter to the Colossians. And we read here, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. And then uh, there's a second text, um, which uh, comes a little bit later. It's actually kind of a hinge text comes at the end of the long introduction, and then before uh, Paul gets into the teaching that he has uh, based on the Lordship of Christ. In the, in, the, in the introduction, he lays out the Lordship of Christ, particularly in one fifteen through 20, which is a beautiful poem about Jesus being the image of the unseen God who created everything. And then uh, later he's going to show the implications of this, and this, this text that we look at now is kind of a hinge text Uh, as he makes that transition from describing the lordship of Christ to how we should respond to it. And here we read, So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving. And we want to look at these um, texts together First of all, let's look at what uh, Paul says about what the heart of the gospel uh, really is. Uh, And he puts this um, in, first of all, in chapter 2, verse uh, 6, the beginning of that uh, verse, as Jesus is Lord. You, You received Jesus Christ 
as Lord. Now Paul reminds the Colossians that they have received him as Lord. This is not particularly, in this case, a statement about an individual's understanding of his or her conversion. None of us understand when we accept the grace of Christ what we're getting into. Um, We don't know uh, what it means that Jesus is Lord of our lives. We, We don't know all the ramifications of that. We'd probably be shocked and scared if we did. Uh, But we do understand in a nutshell who he is, and we respond to that. That's the point here. Paul is thinking about the gospel message that came to this community when his uh, own uh, disciple Epaphras preached in in Colossae, and they accepted it. The Messiah, Jesus, is the Lord of the universe. That's how Paul sums up the message of the gospel. This was the earliest creed of the church. We find it all over the New Testament. For instance, in Philippians 2.11, where Paul says Christ became like us and died a death on the cross, uh, and that God gloried him and exalted him uh, above all other uh, creatures and gave him a name which was above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the earliest uh, creed of the church. Not that Jesus is my personal Savior. That's not what they proclaimed. They believed that, of course, but the gospel is that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. That's why he can save us. You've got to get things in the right order, and that's what Paul wants the church here to understand. So that's the uh, message that Jesus bring, uh, that Paul brings to uh, the Ephesians. You might, at least as a New Testament um, guy, I wonder as I study Jewish background, how did the early church begin to worship Jesus as Lord? How did that begin to happen? He was, after all, a human being. That's how they saw him. He was more than that, we know. But they uh, experienced him as a human being. And it is not a very Jewish thing to do to worship a human being. Um, you know, the, the whole Old Testament is uh, full of warnings against that kind of worship of anybody else, any created being. So how did this come about? Well, I think... It's because of what they experienced. They experienced something with Jesus that convinced him he was much more than just a human being. And that's what he talks about in that first verse we read, that Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, or God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So why do we worship Jesus as Lord? In this verse, we get three quick answers to that. First of all, he rescued us. This is a term from the vocabulary of war, of a rescue action. Um, I think we can picture this as kind of a surgical strike. Jesus coming in, we're held captive by a, a diabolical force. We're held hostage by them, and... Um, Jesus comes and rescues us. It's like the best rescue movie you can 
think of. I have to admit, I'm a sucker for movies like that, you know, where uh, you have some Navy SEAL team and there's some hostage situation and they come in and they pull those people who are just overwhelmed with gratitude because they were saved by this team that went in and got them and pulled them out. My wife is always trying to get me to watch Downton Abbey and period pieces, but, you know, I do that for her. What I really get excited about are those kind of movies. And, you know, that's who Jesus is. He's the ultimate Navy SEAL. He's come into this world and grabbed us out of an impossible hostage situation and rescued us. That's an amazing thing. And uh, I just, when you think about it that way and understand it, it, at least to me, it just is so overwhelming to think that Jesus did that. The second thing is that he redeemed us. This is the, uh, the uh, terminology of the uh, slave market, um, where slaves were put on the block and sold. And if someone, one of their kinsmen, had enough money, they could redeem them out of slavery. And that's what is being said here, that Jesus has done that for us. We were enslaved to powerful forces bent on our destruction. And you know, I think as we look around ourselves, we see that's true. It's hard to deny it in our world, isn't it? Humanity seems to be a collection of addictive behaviors that tear us apart, whether it's alcohol or pornography or gambling or abusive relationships. And I think, when we're honest, each one of us knows what it's like to be in the grips for a shorter period, some of us for years, of some addiction that could ruin us and maybe did ruin us. We understand that if we're honest with ourselves, that we are uh, in, in the grips of slavery to forces beyond our control. And yet Jesus has come and redeemed us from that. Thirdly, uh, we're told that God has forgiven us. This is a term from the law courts. Um, we have been found guilty before God of breaking his law and face the penalty, penalty of eternal damnation, of eternal separation from God. And yet, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God has forgiven us, taking away all those sins. Everything in God's holy nature is bent on ridding his creation of sin. And in fact, Colossians is very clear on that in the third chapter, that the wrath of God is coming upon all the disobedience that is a characteristic of our lives. And yet God loved us so much that he found a way to forgive us through Jesus, the Lord of the universe, to save us. He incurred God's wrath in our place. He saved us. He forgave our sins. So that, for Paul, is the way he describes the gospel to the people in the city of Colossae. Now we want to look uh, how, uh, just really briefly, at how um, we are to respond. The challenge of the gospel that Paul lays out to the people in that community, in that church, is to live under the lordship of Christ, to recognize it, and to live according to it. And we want to look very briefly at what that might mean. Uh, there was a false teaching in 
Colossae, and Paul deals with this in the letter. If you read it carefully, you'll pick up on what that teaching is. Um, The false teaching in Colossae emphasized the need to keep the Jewish law, chapter 2, verse 16, that people should keep particular feast days and make sure they eat the right foods and keep away from the foods that God said in the Old Testament weren't uh, kosher. Um, They thought that it would be helpful to worship uh, or pay homage to angelic beings in Colossians 2, verses 18, you see that, and to fast regularly, to keep a whole regimen of things to show God uh, that you want to do your part too. Now, that sounds, maybe from a worldly point of view, as a good way to respond to the Lordship of Christ. Is that something that Paul affirms here? Not by a long shot. You see, what was going on in the background, in the minds of the people in Colossae, was the kind of idea that, well, sure, Jesus is fine and good, but a little extra effort on our part is also required. Acting pious on certain feast days and avoiding certain things. That's uh, uh, the way to kind of, you know, assist God and to uh, supplement what God has done. And they also thought, like people all over the ancient world and even in many parts of the world today, that it's a good idea to get the right spiritual forces on your side. You know, there are good spirits and bad spirits, and you want to get the good ones on your side, and you want to keep the bad ones away. And so you venerate the right ones and hope that they'll protect you uh, in daily life. That makes sense, at least to most people in the world, and I think more and more in the West as we become a post-Christian society uh, through horoscopes and other things. We're having the same kind of things happening here. You see, everybody in the ancient world knew that the world was full of spiritual powers, good or bad, and it only makes sense to get the good ones on your side and keep the bad ones away by means of these ascetic practices, fasting and keeping certain regimens. You see, I think the false gospel of the teachers in Colossae fundamentally misses the emphasis on the lordship of Jesus. Um, He... uh, Those teachers would have agreed, I think, with the 1980s band Depeche Mode's sarcastic song, Your Own Personal Jesus. They wanted a Jesus that they could control, someone to help them with their agenda. Jesus was fine. They thought he was great. But they felt the freedom to turn to other spiritual beings as needed and become holy on their own terms by keeping a set of rules and regulations. They had everything under their control. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Joshua in Joshua 5, chapter 5. You know, Joshua, they've been commanded, the Israelites, to go into the promised land, and there are all sorts of cities there without walls all over the place. But God says, I want you to take the one that has huge walls. Joshua was standing before Jericho and wondering if this is a good idea. Um, you know, and especially since God says, just march around the city seven times, and then on the seventh day, march around it seven times on that day, and then yell, and the walls will fall down. Um, you can understand his trepidation. So G, uh, Joshua's a little concerned about that, and the night before this battle, he goes out to the hills and 
communes with himself and gathers his strength and reflects. And we're told he sees someone that he describes as the captain of the Lord's army, of the hosts of the Lord. It may well be a pre-incarnational manifestation of Christ, of the second person of the Trinity. Um, uh, Certainly an angelic being who stands before him and represents God. And Joshua's very excited about that, and he goes over to this angel, and he has this pressing question for him. Are you for us, or are you against us? Even that question makes a lot of sense to me in that situation. But I love the answer of the captain of the Lord's armies. It doesn't come through in a lot of English translations, but in the Hebrew, the answer is no. Just that. No. In other words, you framed the question wrong. It's not about whether I'm on your side or not. It's whether you're on my side. I'm the Lord, and you are the servant. Get that right. That's the whole point. And Joshua learns a deeply important spiritual lesson at that time. You see, before Jesus, Joshua could lead God's people, he needed a dramatic realignment of his understanding of God and his relationship with him. And so did the people of Colossae, and so do we. So Paul admonishes us, you were rescued, you were redeemed, you were forgiven by none other than Jesus, the Lord of the universe. And that necessitates that you live under his reign and recognize his authority alone. Paul has emphasized that he is the Lord of the universe before this, and therefore only through Jesus can we have divine benefits. And that uh, requires living in response to Jesus in a certain way. And I wish we had, I had weeks to go through with what I've learned in studying the book of Colossians. The next section that this passage leads into, chapter 2, and uh, verses 6 and 7, is one in which Paul describes the ramifications, the implications of that in several ways. And we can only mention it here uh, very quickly. We say, what does that entail? And I will just go through that with you. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, 6 gives answers to those questions in a, in a very uh, lengthy way, actually. Um, for instance, in Colossians 3, 5, we are admonished or reminded that adherence to a it requires the lordship of Christ adherence to a particular understanding of sexual morality one that's radically different from the world's both now and then um, that's, it's not really all that different in the ancient world than in our time um, with uh, in terms of sexual mores and but God has an idea He's got a plan for sexuality that gives it meaning and purpose within marriage between one man and one woman. And everything else must be put aside. Paul's pretty clear on that. In, in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, he goes on to say, say that a commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ uh, requires a generous and loving and respectful interaction with others. No, there's no place for anger or bitterness or selfishness and we don't use others to advance our agenda. Colossians 3.11, uh, 
uh, and places an obligation on the Colossians to work to overcome cultural, uh, religious, social, and even racial barriers. He says there's no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no Scythian or barbarian. Scythians were in the north, and the Berbers in north uh, uh, in the north of Africa. The north and south actually black and white in the ancient world. And Paul says, those barriers have to be broken down. That's part of the obligation of the church. Uh, 3.18 through 4.1 reminds us in some descriptions or regulations for family life that there's a particular ordering, ordering for family and even economic relationships. And we are not free to live autonomously or to reinvent social obligations at will or only to look out for our own needs. And finally, chapter 4, verse 2 through 6, we have an obligation to do what we can to make sure that all people hear the gospel, our neighbors, refugees, people in other parts of the world. And we make our resources available to that end. This, unfortunately, is not what at least I've heard in many churches in Germany, and I, and I think it's a problem here in many as well, this kind of uh, expectation that we will respond in certain ways to the Lordship of Christ hasn't been taught as clearly, I think, as it should. Too often, Jesus has been reduced to a self-help strategy, as if he were the key to our personal happiness. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong at this point. I think if you follow Jesus, it will help you and will ultimately make you happy. But that happens on his terms and not ours. One of my favorite songs is still that children's song, Trust and Obey. If we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You know, Jesus himself promised his followers hardship and misunderstanding, animosity, and even persecution. And Christians in other parts of the world understand this, and they risk their lives daily by following him. And by all accounts, uh, they are experiencing great joy. I hear stories all the time from people from other parts of the world where Christians are persecuted, and what characterizes them, characterizes them in these accounts is great joy. I think we have a lot to learn from them. How do we remain true to the gospel? Paul also gives us a few practical steps, or a couple. First of all, he talks about the need to keep the faith. He had begun with a couple metaphors to stay rooted and to build on a foundation. And the point of the comparison is, of course, that we don't move away from a particular place, from a particular faith that we have affirmed. And so I think he realizes that he needs to spell out a little bit more what he means in concrete terms. So he says, remain established in the faith that you have been taught, in the teaching you have received. He is implying, I think, that the church must be serious about preaching and teaching the Bible. And believers must be serious about listening and learning. See, the point of sermons and Bible studies, Sunday school, etc., is not to make us feel good or to um, affirm us particularly, although 
Sometimes it does that. But so that we will know what following Jesus looks like in practical ways. That's why we study the Bible. There were so many other voices in Colossae. There were pragmatists, there were pluralists, there were Epicureans and Stoics. And just like now, actually, where there are so many different voices, all sorts of confusing and contradictory ideas about politics and gender and ethics. And we will drift aimlessly if we don't constantly ground ourselves in what the Bible teaches. So we come together and keep the faith. Then Paul reminds us that we need to be thankful. This is a characteristically Christian command, and actually when you kind of think about it, a bit of an odd one. Either you're thankful or you're not, right? How do you command somebody to be thankful? But Paul's implicit answer to this is you meditate on what Jesus the Lord has done for you and you will become thankful. This is the other important task that the church attends to. In addition to the teaching, uh, it reminds us in worship, in singing, and in praising God together that what we were apart from Christ and what he did to change that. That's why we sing hymns about Jesus and what he has done for us. That's Paul actually admonishes us to do that in Colossians, to teach and admonish each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because as we focus on what Jesus has done and praise him for it, thanksgiving comes up in our hearts naturally. If we think about it, we will begin to sense thankfulness springing up in our soul. Part of what we do here in services like this one is to remember what God has done for us and express our thanks to him in praise and worship. We sense the incomprehensible love of God who loved us in spite of what we had become. This really is amazing grace, amazing love. You know, we started out by considering our obligation to respond to the lordship of Christ. It's fascinating to me that actually Martin Luther, who was the great discoverer again, or rediscoverer of grace, and we think of him in terms of grace, actually understood, I think, very well how these things fit together, much more often than some of his followers who put grace and obedience kind of as opposites from each other. But Luther, I think, got it actually quite right. I want to uh, turn to his very first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. He says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer to that is as follows from Martin Luther. My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil, and he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, he goes on to say, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. 
That's obedience. But that's grace. They go together. And Luther understood that. You see, the, the essence of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. Maybe you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord, and you need to do so today. Please do that. That's who he is. He is the Lord who saved you. Or maybe you needed to be reminded, as I felt reminded as I studied this, um, who he really is and what my uh, obligation to him is. He is the Lord. And the proper response to the amazing love of Jesus, which Charles Wesley talked about and which we will sing here in a second, is to joyfully submit to the Lordship of Christ. That is a challenge at times, but ultimately nothing is more satisfying than that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are our Lord, that you saved us. We pray that out of gratitude we would respond in loving obedience and find our satisfaction in you. Nothing else in the world really offers it, but you do. And we pray that we would find it in you and in being a part of a community of believers who confess you as Lord and Christ. Amen.